Let's pray. Lord, what we have just sung just now is our prayer to you. And we do pray that your church would be built up, that the earth would be filled with your glory. And we pray that by grace that we will stand on your promises and by faith we will walk as you walk with us. And so we pray that today, that as we look at your word, that your spirit would teach and instruct us, rebuke and correct us. Lord, that in all these things, that you would be glorified and your name would be known. Lord, that as we walk out these doors, that we would go so, go so as those who have not only heard the word of God, but as people that are compelled by your spirit to do the word of God as well. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, I don't know what your background was like or how you grew up, but uh, I know I grew up hearing nursery rhymes. And I don't know if you've said them yourself, taught them to your kids, or you were taught nursery rhymes. But, you know, I, I used to think they were sort of cute little ditties, and I thought, oh, this is sort of neat. And then you begin to listen to the words of the, the nursery rhymes, and you go, whoa, I don't know about this. I mean, I was just thinking this week, rock-a-bye baby on the treetop, when the, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock, when the bough or, or the branch breaks, the cradle will fall, and down won't come baby, cradle and all. And you go, ooh, my. Or maybe this one, ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Which is really talking about the time of the plague when millions of people died. And you begin to look at these and you think, oh my goodness, what are we teaching our children? But I think the worst one is probably this one. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And, you know, as we look at the scriptures, as we look at what God has revealed to us in his word, we find out that's not true at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, as we look at James, we see that, that a few things in life do more damage than the tongue, that our words oftentimes hurt others. And this week I was uh, made aware of some statistics that, that say, that show that women speak about 20,000 words a day. 20,000 words a day. Now, we men, we're not quite up to par in terms of that. We only speak about 7,000 words a day. So only about a third. But still, regardless, if you look at that, that gives us a lot of opportunity every day to cause injury to others with our words. And so as we come to James chapter 3 today, it, you know, it's, it's very apropos, very applicable to our lives and the things that we oftentimes struggle with. Now, before we delve into this passage, though, I think we need to look at the context of, of what James is uh, doing here. And if you look back at the end of chapter 1, particularly verses 26 and 27, we read this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, how do you make the distinction between someone who claims to be a Christian and someone who really is a Christian? And James says, well, let me give you three indicators. Let me, let me give you three areas of their lives to look at 
and to see. Because someone who is my child, someone who is a child of, of the living God, their lives will look a certain way in these three areas. And the first he talks about is the tongue. And the whole thing of bridling the tongue. The second area is in our care and love and concern for the needy around us. And the third area is resisting worldliness. And as we got to chapter 2, we saw that what James began to do after he sort of lays out this premise at the end of chapter 1 is he begins to unpack what those things look like. And at the beginning in, in chapter 2, we see that he really dealt with this, this second one, this love, care, and concern for the needy. He said, you know, you have people who come into your worship service and you're showing favoritism. The guy who looks rich, you're like, hey, come right up front. He, have the nice seat. Oh, the guy that doesn't look so nice looks a little, you know, I'll tell you what, why don't you sit on the plastic chairs, you know, rather than these nice cushiony chairs. We don't want you to mess up our chairs. You know, it's sort of what the Christians were doing. And James is like, what are you guys doing? And he said, it's not enough just to say that you love those that are in need. You know, you, you say, go and be warm and be filled, but you do absolutely nothing to meet that need. That's not a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he comes to here to chapter 3 as we get to this chapter. Then he begins to look at the tongue. And then as we will see as we get to the end of chapter 3 and to the end of the book, He's going to talk about this whole idea of uh, keeping unstained from worldliness. And so James is just sort of going to unpack these three things of what genuine faith looks like. But today I just want us to look at what our speech has to do with our faith. So look first of all at verses 1 and 2 where James gives a warning about the tongue. He gives us a warning about the tongue. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, that's pretty straightforward. You know, we know that a teacher or a preacher is someone who sort of earns their living in one sense by speaking words. And, you know, you've got to be careful. The words that you speak, you will be held accountable for that. But the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, as James is coming to chapter 3, is he only talking to teachers and to preachers? And the answer is no. He's giving a very specific example here and talking to teachers and, and preachers, but he wants to illustrate a more general truth. And, and we see that as he goes throughout the text as well. And also because James is sort of reflecting the words of his half-brother Jesus. You know, look, if you would, at Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. Matthew 12, verse 36 where Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for er every careless word that they speak. Let that just sink in just a moment. That, that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. This is a very sobering verse. And it's not just for teachers and preachers, but it's for, for everyone. Now, if you really want to think how sobering this is just think about your this week okay just think about the conversations that you had just think about the words that you spoke to other people it might have been to a roommate or to your co-workers it might have been to your kids or to your husband or to your wife or to a friend or someone at school or family member or the words you spoke to your boss or if you're a boss maybe to your clients and just think about those words that were said and then think of 
of what Jesus said. Every, every careless word we speak, we will give an account. Do you feel like that brings you up sort of short? I know it, it does me. And, and it, it does um, because I think to our chagrin, you know, words oftentimes escape our mouths sometimes without us even thinking about it. Sometimes things just pop out, right? Do you, are you ever so frustrated with somebody that you say something and then you think, oh, I wish I could have taken that back? Well, you know, the Bible talks a lot about our words. And we could go back to the book of Proverbs and we could spend all afternoon just looking at different verses where Proverbs deals with the tongue. One, one that comes to mind is Proverbs 18, verses 6 and 7, where he says, A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Do you ever feel like that sometimes with your words, that the things you say almost invite a beating? He said, A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. Well, I don't know if you ever feel like that. I can identify with that. And James could too. Because he says in verse 2, he says, For we all stumble in many ways. He didn't say, Y'all stumble in many ways. It's your problem. James says, We all stumble in many ways. In other words, you know, we, we, the tongue is not the only way that we stumble or that we trip in our Christian faith. Because we stumble in a lot of different ways, a variety of ways. Uh, we can all relate, I think, to the words of the hymn writer who wrote, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And yet, we are nowhere more inclined to stumble, I think, than in our speech. And so James says at the end of verse 2, And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Okay, Now that word perfect there sort of directs us back to chapter 1 in the opening verses where he talked about counting it all uh, joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. And we talked about how that word means mature uh, and complete, lacking in nothing. And so James is saying that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man able to bridle his own body. Now, James is hardly saying anything new in claiming that a person who did not sin in his speech would be perfect, that he could control his whole body. But the reality is, the ease in which we sin with our speech is so common that it is a constant reminder of the power of indwelling sin and our helplessness to cure ourselves and our continual need of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to enable us to be faithful with our tongues, right? We know probably none of us, uh, we know that none of us uh, gets even close to never stumbling. As James says, we all stumble. Now, why is that? Well, that leads us to the second point, and that is the controlling power of the tongue in verses 3 through 6. You know, James gives us several illustrations to show us the controlling power of the tongue. And he talks about the bit in the horse's mouth. And whenever I, I read this, I always think of Ben-Hur. I don't know if you guys like that movie or not. But, you know, especially the scene in the arena when, you know, they're, they're going sort of neck to neck and they're in their chariots and the, the horses are going and they're bumping into each other and trying to knock each other's chariots over. And, you know, they're just, it's like really intense. And you just know that those riders have to have just perfect control over those horses. And all it is is just a little piece of metal in their mouths that controls that, the power of that horse to go left or right. 
Now, for us, I think maybe a more modern illustration might be the steering wheel on our car, especially if you have a really cool car, you know, maybe a sports car or something like that, or if you drive a race car or something. You know, just you have all that power in that car, and it can be directed in any way just with a little turn of that steering wheel. Or as James talks about here, the rudder of a ship. And you think about the wind and how powerful the wind is. And of course, in Kansas, we can understand that, right? You know, and the power of the wind. We may not know what a ship is or an ocean, but we know what wind is. And, you know, that wind blows on that ship and is as powerful as that would be in moving that ship. All it takes is just a little turn of the captain of that to turn the wheel and turns that rudder. And that rudder directs that ship where it's supposed to go. And James uses these metaphors to make the point that a large and potentially unruly force can be subdued and rejected by a relatively small piece of equipment. And so likewise, the tongue, even though it's disproportionately small, has a disproportionately large influence on us as, as people. It's a, it has a greater impact on our lives and we all know that by experience. Words can be used powerfully in our life. And, you know, we've sort of talked about negative ways, but words can be used powerfully in a positive way as well. You know, and I just think about a father who maybe is uh, parenting his child and he sits down with his child and he has a situation in front of him, this parenting issue that he has to deal with. And he's trying to think, OK, now what am I supposed to say? And he's sitting there thinking, OK, now what did my parents tell me when I was in this situation, when I did this? And, you know, and he starts talking to his child. And, you know, it's almost like the words that his parents told him just begin to come out of his mouth because those words were so powerful to affect him as a child that now as a father he's beginning to pass on that same thing to his kids. You ever experienced that? And you go, wow, where did that come from? You know, but you were so influenced by the power of the words. Or maybe you've had a friend and you've been going through a very difficult time and that friend comes to you and speaks words of encouragement at just the right time and in just the right way that makes all the difference between you falling into despair and you feeling a sense of hopefulness in the midst of your circumstances because of the words that they spoke. You know, Paul Tripp, uh, in a series he did called War of Words, and maybe that's a series we ought to do sometimes because it talks about the tongue and uh, it's, it gives a little bit uh, more in-depth look at it. But he, he speaks of the power of words that we speak and likens them to the power of God's creative word. That God, when he created creation, he spoke and everything came into existence by the, the power of his word. And likewise, as, as children of God, made in the image of God, our words have power uh, to create or destroy. Not obviously in the same way that God's does, but it does because we are made in his likeness and in his image. So James is stressing just how powerful the tongue is. And he says that in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. But then he goes on and says, not only is it influential... But it can do great harm. And you look at that at, at verse 5. He says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Now, when I was in college, uh, one of the things that they would allow us college students to do is if they had a huge forest fires in the mountains of North Carolina, is they would hire college students to come out and do grunt work. You know, we'd be, you know, clearing the lines and stuff like that. You know, we'd work cheap. 
and uh, would be hardworking and stuff like that. So I signed up to do that. And, and I remember when I went on my first uh, forest fire, I was driving in my car and I came up over the ridge of the mountain. And when, I, and when I peaked the ridge of that mountain, all I could see was smoke as far as I could look. And I was just like, whoa. I was just amazed at just, you know, uh, how huge this fire was that we were going to be fighting. And then I found out um, later on that, you know, sometimes these forest fires are started by somebody throwing a Coke bottle out alongside the road and the sun shining through the Coke bottle and starting the fire. Or, or maybe it would be a lightning strike or something that would start the fire. But oftentimes they said that there were families that it was their tradition, almost like a New Year's resolution, but it was their tradition every spring to go out and start a fire. They would just start a little tiny fire to create a forest fire. That's just what their family did. And it was like, really? Why would they do that? Do they not see how destructive that is? But it's the same way with our tongues. As small as they may be, they have the, the potential to decimate others. You know, I think I like how one person described the tongue. They said, our tongue is our own personal weapon of mass destruction. Can anybody here relate to that? No, you don't have to raise your hand. But can you relate to that? I mean, does it not feel like that sometimes? Is the way that we speak to others that it's our weapon of mass destruction. And that's what James says. Look at verse 6. He said, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. You know, our talk burns it can redirect the course of our life. The words that we use can disrupt a family. It can divide a congregation. I've seen churches split over just words that people began to speak to one another. Parents who watch children, it doesn't matter whether they're young or whether they're adolescents, know that the power of harm that words can do to them if we speak when we're frustrated or, or angry. You know, and, and how many parents in this room have had their hearts break as they've seen other kids pick on their children and say harsh things about them? Or I think what's even sometimes harder as parents is as we hear our kids say harsh things about other kids. And it breaks our hearts to, to see that. Children can be incredibly cruel in the words that they use against one another. Uh, it sort of reminds me of the proverb that says, um, there is one whose rash words are like the sword thrust. In other words, when we say words rashly and we don't think about it, it's just like taking a sword and stabbing somebody with it. It does that, that kind of damage. And those words can cause divisions and damage that, that sometimes are never ever repaired. And James is saying that the tongue is important not only because it's influential, but because... It, it can do huge damage. But then he gives us the source of where these words come from. He says, and at the end of verse 6, and he says, and set on fire by hell. Well, James is saying that if you want to see the source of the little white lies that we tell, you know, we sort of justify it. Well, it's not really an official lie. It's just a little white lie, so it's not really that bad. Or, or that harsh word that you spoke to your kids or the gossip that you were engaged in as you talked about your friends uh, at school. If you want to see the source of that, James says, yes, it comes from our wicked hearts, but it comes from something even deeper than that. Because when you go back to the problem of sin, which showed up 
in our speech, it goes back to the words at the very beginning from the pit of hell itself, words that call, cause the fall of mankind. I mean, think about what Satan said to Eve. He didn't come and, you know, perform some mighty act to tempt her. Satan just came to Eve and he spoke five very simple words. Uh, in in uh, Genesis 3, verse 4, he says, You surely will not die. You surely will not die. He lied to her. You know, he said, Did God say this? And then eventually he says, You know, you surely will not die. And so words are the source of our misery. And our first parents, listening to those words, uh, brought the downfall of uh, all of humanity. And so we need to understand uh, where these harsh words come from. And if you go back and you read Galatians chapter 5, you'll see where James talks about the works of the flesh. And oftentimes he talks about gossip and he talks about anger and he talks about the use of the tongue. That these things come and they're the works of the flesh and of the devil. You know, one uh, preacher, I thought it was interesting as he was talking about this passage. He said, you know, sometimes we think about demonic activity as things like, you know, spinning heads and crazy voices, you know, demonic voices. That's the work of the devil. He said, that's not true. He goes, really? He said, the works of the devil is our everyday speech. It's our speech that kills and wounds and scars other people. That's where we oftentimes see the devil working. And so James says that that's what Satan does. He's a murderer from the beginning. He kills. And the one way he does that is through our speech as uh, brothers and sisters. So we see the warning about our words and we also see that the reason why that warning is there because our words are very powerful. But also, we also see that we need help to deal with our tongue. If you look at verses 7 through 12, he says, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You know, so we as humans can train all kinds of animals. And maybe, kids, you've gone to the circus. Your parents have taken you there. I know we used to live in Florida for a while, so we would go to Bush Gardens. And sometimes we'd see the, the shows, and they would have the dolphins or, you know, whatever. And they would have these animals perfectly trained. And yet, he says that we as human beings speak uncontrollably. That we cannot really deal with our own tongues. And that's uh, because the tongue is uncontrollable. It's not something that we can manage. We need help outside of ourselves in order to, to tame that tongue. It shows us that we are powerless to change ourselves when it comes to our words. I mean, how many times have you heard yourself say, Okay, I'm sorry, I'm just going to do better. Or you say to your kids, Okay, I'm so sorry, Mommy got angry, I, just, I was frustrated, I'll do better, you know, I apologize. And we just think, if I, could, if I could just try harder and do better. And maybe even this morning, you're struggling with your tongue. Maybe on the way to church, you're just very thankful that the preacher doesn't know the conversation that you had in the car as you were pulling up. You know, and of course, everybody you know, gets out, walks into the church, and they're all smiling, and they all look so good. But it just would be great to know what happened about that half hour before they got to church, right? You know, 
But it might be that we're struggling. Maybe you're struggling with gossip or nagging or or maybe kids you struggle with lying and not telling your parents the truth or or boasting. You know, we like to brag about ourselves. And I know kids this isn't true just of adults. I mean, I see kids do this all the time. You guys sort of huddle up in your little group even here at church. And and I hear you talking to each other and you're like, oh, you did that? Well, that's great. Well, I did this, you know, and you sort of want everybody to accept you as like the cool kid. And, you know, you want them to see how awesome that you are. And so you're trying to promote yourself and you do that through the words. You know, so if somebody tells a story instead of going, oh, really? That's really neat. Why don't you tell me more? You got to sort of insert yourself and show how important that you are. So maybe you're building yourself up even by cutting other people down and talking about how bad they are or sharing rumors with this. All of these things point to a sin problem, a heart that can't be solved by ourselves. And maybe you're here today and you're ashamed of the words that you have spoken and you feel hypocritical. Well, James says, you're not by yourself. You're not alone. Actually, look at verses 9 and 10. He says, with it, that is with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. So James reveals sort of a a deep-seated inconsistency in our spiritual lives. The tongue is made by God to be a blessing, and yet it's used for both good and evil by professing believers. I mean, notice what he says in verse 10 and verse 12. He uses that phrase, my brothers. You know, he's talking to Christians here. He's not talking to the pagan world. He's saying, my brothers. You know, we bless the Lord and Father, and yet we curse people with the same tongue. And then he says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. So James doesn't just dismiss it and say, you know, everybody does it. I know everybody struggles with it, so it's okay. Just try to do your best. He doesn't do that. He, he says that we should, he doesn't dismiss this inconsistency. He said we need to realize that the tongue is an indicator of the condition of our hearts. Look at verse uh, 11 and 12. He says, does a spring pour forth the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He said, look, you see a crack in this rock? There's water coming out of this? You know, does that crack? Can you have both fresh water and salt water? And the point that he's tried to do is, is uh, to show us is, is that the spring pours out water according to the nature of its source. You know, whatever kind of spring that is, if it's a fresh water spring, it's going to give you fresh water. If it's a salt water spring, you're not going to get anything out of that but salt water. In the same way, with trees or a vine, you know, whatever kind of tree that is, that's the kind of fruit you're going to get. Kids, you can't go to an apple tree and get a peach, can you? No, all you're going to get is apples. And he says, likewise, the fruit of our lips, the words that we speak, reveals the root condition of our hearts. That our hearts are the source and the words that flow out of our mouths are the indicators of what's in our heart. Let me read, if I could, again from Matthew 12, verse 34, just a couple of verses earlier from what we read earlier. Jesus says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The point is that hypocrisy in speech reveals a heart problem. Inconsistency in speech reveals a heart problem that needs a remedy. So do you want to know what's in your heart? Listen to your words. You want to know what's in the heart of your kids? Listen to their words. Brothers and sisters, our word problems can only be addressed with a changed heart, which can only be solved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I think is interesting about this passage? James doesn't give us a solution. He doesn't say, here, now this is how you fix it. You know, it's, it's, it's as if he leaves us with a moment to consider the condition of our heart. Almost to say, so what kind of source is your heart? So where, where are you? And what they're doing, and as they're considering that, they also have in mind what James says in chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you this today. Are you religious? Is your faith real? What do your, your words reveal about the condition of your heart? If you're here today and you're a non-Christian, you need to run to the Lord Jesus for change. You know, to be transformed. You, need to, you, you don't need to just turn over a new leaf and, and to try harder but you need a change that comes from the inside out. You need to come to him and admit that your heart is one that needs to be changed. But likewise, if you're here today, like James' audience, and you're a Christian, then you need to realize that in the words that you're speaking, that you are not acting like a Christian when you communicate these kinds of words to other people, and you need to repent. You can't just excuse yourself and say, oh, well, that's just the way I was. I, you know, my parents raised me. That's just the way we talked around our house. Or, you know, that's just, you know, that's just how I've spoken for years. You know, you can't teach a, an old dog new tricks or whatever. You know, God wants us to see that the things that we, ought, that, that we are called to do as his children is to, to use our words wisely. And that comes from a heart that's been changed. And so... We need to come to the Lord and to repent, to call out to Him in prayer and ask that He might show us His grace so that we might stop using the kind of speech that dishonors His name and use it for godly purposes. But this can only come through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Christian, that heart promise, the remedy of that heart problem is sanctification. That is what we talked about earlier in our worship service, where sanctification is that dying more and more into sin each day and walking more and more in obedience to Jesus Christ. You know, Paul says, work out your sanctification with fear and with trembling because it is God who works in you. We need to be reminded that as we come this day, that in, in our and the work that God is doing in our hearts, He doesn't call us just to sit back and say, Okay, God, you changed my heart. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. He says, No, give yourself to obeying the things that I have said, but know for certain that as your God, as your Father, that I will complete the work that I have done in you. 
And, and God will, will work to change our hearts. Uh, and as he changes our hearts, as he, as he works in our lives, we will see our tongues, the words of our hearts change as we um, live to glorify him and not to just promote ourselves. Amen? Let's bow our heads, if we could, for a moment of silence and meditation this morning.